So how do we find ourselves in a situation where a culture is so far off the rails that our borders are wide open? We declare transgenderism to be the norm or political corruption has become just business as usual. Well, as I will explain in this episode of Ideas Have Consequences, it all has to do with the rejection of belief in absolute truth. And it starts with the second half of the 19th century and three figures, three major figures whose collected works have impacted the West in ways that you scarcely understand. But I will explain how we now find ourselves in, oh, DEFCON 2. How many of you feel that something has gone wrong with our country, with our society? According to a recent NBC News poll, NBC News, not Fox News, not Breitbart, 71% of Americans think that this country is in a state of decline. Says NBC, and I quote, 71% of Americans in our latest NBC poll saying the country is headed in the wrong direction is the eighth time in the last nine NBC News surveys dating back to October 2021 when the wrong track has been above 70%. And the one exception was in September 2022, when it was 68%. We have never before seen this level of sustained pessimism in the 30-year-plus history of this poll. Now, again, that's NBC News. Now, Americans feel that meaning that is probably much worse if we were to see this actually being done by a uh, much more reliable news agency. But the fact is that Americans feel that something's not quite right with their culture. Our government, school, public morality, the breakdown of the family, and public discourse are all pointed to as indicators of, of a society that is rotting from within. Yet even among those of us who needed no polls to confirm what we have been intuitively sensing, at least initially we intuitively sensed it, meaning you know a couple of decades ago, I still don't think most of us have fully appreciated the degree to which things have changed. This was brought home to me with startling clarity while I was watching, of all things, a cartoon with my children, with my boys, about 15 years ago. You see, I had read an article about a young man in Australia who was attacked and killed by two great white sharks while surfing. Naturally, authorities mounted an expedition to kill the sharks, sharks that were described by one observer as the, quote, the size of cars. And that is for the obvious reason that they posed a lethal threat to swimmers and surfers alike. Finding the sharks, however, proved much less formidable to the authorities than the public opposition that they encountered. Protests to, quote, save the sharks were mounted. Some of the most vociferous opponents uh, were some of the members of the dead surfer's own family. A poll found that 76% of Australians agreed with them. One blogger, apparently voicing the majority of opinion, wrote, he, referring to the surfer, got what he deserved. The man was eaten, was devoured by sharks. But hey, he got what he deserved. Now, bear in mind that the young man in question 
wasn't Steve Irwin. He wasn't deliberately provoking animals or trying to swim with them, or nor did he have some circle of life kind of mentality that was being displayed in his hobby. Rather, he was just a guy who wanted to avoid everything but big waves. He was just a guy who was out for a swim and to surf. But these were people who took the view that human life was less important than those of two sharks that had taken human life. And that should be very shocking to most of us. And the Australian authorities said, we'll just let it go. We won't worry about it. And the kill the sharks campaign was called off because of the save the sharks campaign. Now, again, what I'm talking about is an event that happened about 15 years ago. And it really should have shocked me more than it did, but you're already becoming kind of desensitized to this kind of behavior. Because we're seeing, we have been seeing for decades, this kind of stuff being codified into law. How, do you ask? Well, consider the following. According to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the maximum penalty for killing an eagle under the Bald and Gold Eagle Protection Act is one year imprisonment and a $100,000 fine. Under Migratory Bird Treaty Act, two years imprisonment and a $250,000 fine. Additional charges will be sought against you should you violate these laws. Under the Lacey Act, which carries a maximum penalty of five years imprisonment and a $250,000 fine. These statutes further prohibit anyone from taking, possessing, transporting, selling, or purchasing any eagles or eagles' parts including feathers. Now, this is all well and good. I mean, insofar as um, I'm in favor of protecting our national bird or protecting those animals which are endangered species, but here we're talking about that you can go to jail and face massive fines for, quote, harvesting the parts of a uh, bird, but you can receive federal funding to kill your unborn human child, to kill your own baby, and to have its parts harvested. You can cut off a little boy's penis, but if you transport an eagle's eggs, you will face federal charges. In Newsom's California, his Hotel California, the state, as of this past week, can now remove children from their parents' home without evidence of abuse. But if you remove an eagle's egg from its nest, you're going to jail. Now, the story of the shark and the surfer was not shocking, was not nearly as shocking as it should have been. I had become desensitized to these things. Most of us have become desensitized. Enter Johnny Quest. Now, some of you will remember the 90s version of Johnny Quest, which was very PC. But there was another one in my childhood. It was already in rerun by the time I came along. It was uh, produced in the mid-early 1960s before I was born. But 
My brother and I still watched it. It was on on Saturday mornings, and we loved it. It was the kind of thing, Indiana Jones-esque kind of thing, that would just thrill little boys. Each Saturday, Johnny and his father, Dr. Quest, and the Haji and their dog, Bandit, and Race Bannon were in some exotic part of the world uh, taking on some bad guys. Now, I had been telling my boys at this time, again, this is about 15, 20 years ago, I'd been telling my boys about Johnny Quest for quite some time. And I'd been telling them that the cartoons of their generation were, well, crap. That they had been really, really denied any of the really good cartoons. Instead, they got things like Captain Planet, you know, and that kind of nonsense. So one day, I am in... Sam's Club. And there I see a box set of Johnny Quest cartoons on DVD every season right there. And eagerly, I purchased it and I took it home to watch classic JQ with my boys. Now, my sensibilities were immediately shocked. No, I mean really shocked. More than the story of the family who wanted to spare the lives of sharks after it ate their son and brother, or the 76% of Australians who agreed with them, this cartoon was jarring. Now, what was so jarring about it? Well, in addition to Dr. Quest instructing Johnny to pray before he went to bed and the notion that there is an absolute universal right and wrong that that hangs over the entire series, there was a scene where Johnny is in danger and a big panther is stalking him. Race Bannon from a distance says, hold on, Johnny, and he lifts his rifle. I mean, right there. I mean, a gun in a cartoon. Uh, raises a, uh, the, his rifle and he shoots this panther. And then he tells Johnny to wait and he goes up to the panther and he puts the muzzle of the, the, the barrel of the gun right against his head and shoots it a second time. <laughs> and you see Johnny go like this as he shoots it in the head. And I thought, wow, it has been a while since I have seen Johnny Quest, since I've seen cartoons like this one. But you see, the point is, I, in seeing that, I was shocked because here was a cartoon over the decades, I've been slowly desensitized, and here was a cartoon that took a proper view of human life, that it is intrinsically more valuable than animal life. I was shocked by the fact that Race Bannon had zero hesitation in killing and putting down this animal. Not because I would have any hesitation to do that. I certainly would not. I've shot many an animal, but because I was seeing it in a cartoon. And my boys were jarred too because I hadn't seen anything like that before in any of the cartoons of their own generation, being millennials. And uh, I guess Zachary, uh, my youngest son, is a, is a Gen Zer. This was before, this was before um, uh, we had adopted Sasha. And you see, we had gone from a proper view of human life to a warped one of human life. We're shooting a panther before it kills Johnny, and then here we are, we're allowing sharks to devour human beings and just treating it like it was absolutely no big deal. The culture had changed massively. William Bennett said this, civilizations do not collapse overnight, they do it incrementally. And indeed, that is 
absolutely true. According to the Bible, man seeks autonomy. He's always rebelling against God. The psalmist wrote, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Actually, the psalmist says that twice. Is twice in the Psalms. They've all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That's Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. Part of it is echoed in Romans chapter 3. You see, from the Garden of Eden to the Tower of Babel to the Golden Calf, man is depicted as a creature that is in a state of continual rebellion against his creator. Now, it's my contention that the pinnacle of man's efforts, Western man's efforts, to find autonomy came in the second half of the 19th century. Now, I'm not suggesting that this was an absolute beginning. Outside of Genesis 1-1, there is no such thing as an absolute beginning. Nevertheless, this extraordinary period of time saw the emergence of three men whose published works would provide the philosophical framework for the 20th century and beyond. The first of these is, could you guess? Could you guess? Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin. His works, The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, or its lesser-known title, The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Darwin was a racist straight through. That little part you weren't taught in school, that part is never mentioned when we are celebrating. And that's what we do these days. Celebrate Darwin is how wonderful he was. Though Darwin may have been speaking of finches when he spoke of, quote, favored races, it was easy. Indeed, it was logical to take the next step and to apply the theory to men. Darwin, though inconsistent, seems to have approved of the idea in the descent of man and in his personal correspondence. Man, according to Darwin, contained no divine spark, no purpose. On the contrary, man's appearance on earth was accidental. He was just simply an accident in space and time. The second is Karl Marx. In his colossal work, Capital, Marx applied evolutionary theory to history. He concluded that history is driven by personal economic forces, not God and not even man. He had intended to get, dedicate that massive work to Darwin, um, but Darwin wisely declined that dubious honor. And the third individual is Friedrich Nietzsche. In Thus Spake Zarathustra and Beyond Good and Evil, the German philosopher declares the death of Christianity as a compelling ethic. His writings went far to sever Europe's and ultimately America's last tie with absolute truth because he popularized the godless implications of the work of the two aforementioned men, Darwin and Marx. Helen Bloom put it this way in The Closing of the American Mind, a tremendous book. He says, the masses are singing a song of German origin, which they do not understand. And behind it all is Nietzsche, the master lyricist. And that, of course, he was meaning today. He was talking about modern America. I mean, he wrote the book in the 1980s, but he, was, he wasn't just simply referring to the 19th century or even the early 20th century. Rather, he's talking about now. And as a result of this, man's autonomy was complete. 
and what a price he's paid for it. It's not an exaggeration to say that these three men sounded the death knell for the Christian God, for the absolute, to have a meaningful place in the intellectual life of the West. The natural and social sciences, economics, and philosophy were all amputated from those restraints. This would be well-pleasing to them, for each saw himself as a kind of liberator. Like the philosophers in Plato's allegory of the cave, they, the self-proclaimed enlightened, would return to the cave and free men from the myths that served to shackle them. Such freedom, however, has proved very, very costly to the human race. Now, it's not my purpose in this podcast to examine the work of these men and its validity, though I've done so elsewhere in other podcasts and also in my writings. In fact, Friedrich Nietzsche played a role in my salvation and my conversion to Christianity. And you may say, how? Well, you can go and uh, look on my website for an article that is titled, Imagine There's No Heaven, colon, I did. Anyway, I'll leave, I'll leave the, uh, um, the examination of those men and their works, at least in terms of this podcast, to academicians who are so inclined um, to do that. Rather, I simply want to point out that their work, the implications of their work, that there is no God, has reverberated down to our own time. Now, this is best, perhaps, illustrated by the lives and writings of two astute observers of that time. Contemporaries of the aforementioned three, they were quick to understand the consequences for Western culture. The first was my hero, one of my heroes, Fedor Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky, who lived from 1821 to 1881, was a Russian author and for much of his life, a socialist, revolutionary, and an atheist. And the two, he would argue, go together. There's no such thing as a Christian socialist. I know that term is occasionally used. The two are absolutely opposites. And that is because socialism begins with a singular premise, there is no God. And it seeks to build utopia on earth, heaven on earth, not in heaven itself. I mean, to quote Dostoevsky, who says in the Brothers Karamazov, it's to build, it's the rebuilding of the Tower of Babel, not to mount he, uh, earth to heaven, but to bring heaven down to earth. In 1941, Dostoevsky was arrested and he was sentenced to death. And that's because he was part of a terrorist cell that was planning to kill the, uh, the czar. Standing as he was, in front of a firing squad, he wanted to believe that there was more to this life than just the physical, than just the known, than just the observable. And so, standing there waiting for the command to fire, he reverted to the orthodox faith of his childhood. And he said, we shall be with Christ. He said this to one of his fellow conspirators, to which the latter, looking at the ground, replied, pointed to the ground and replied, or uh, looking at the ground, said, only a handful of dust, meaning we just revert to dust. That's all we do. We're just going to cease to exist. Now, now, the execution was mock. At the last moment, a messenger from the czar burst into the courtyard, um, presumably to prevent the sentence from being carried out. 
saying, wait, wait, wait. And of course, again, it was a mock execution. The prisoners didn't know that there was never a plan to execute them. It was just to, it was just to terrify them. It was just to frighten them. And instead of an execution, they each received lengthy prison terms. And Dostoevsky would be allowed one book in prison, and that was the New Testament. You know, the New Testament wasn't translated into Russian until 1818. Think about that. It's pretty incredible. Until 1818. Everyone's going to encounter pain in their life. The questions deal with the degree of one's pain and the source of one's pain and how we deal with our pain. In this course, I'm speaking very personally about my own pain and some of the lessons that I've learned in coping with pain, how we minister to people with pain, and what kind of perspective are we to have on the big questions that surround pain and human suffering. Why would you take a course like this? Well, presumably, if you haven't suffered in your own life, you will encounter people who do, and undoubtedly some of them are people who are very near and dear to you. I think it'd be very helpful for you to take a course like this in order to understand what they're experiencing and the way that you minister to people in those kinds of circumstances. So I'd love for you to take this course of mine. And I wanna tell you this, that when you subscribe to Tome, you get access not just to my course, but to more than a hundred other courses that are dealing with very practical issues and assisting you in living and in flourishing. So where can you get this course? Well, you can't get it at Amazon, you can't get it at Apple, can't get it at Netflix. You can only get it at Tome. So I want you to go to tomeapp.com slash pain to learn more about my course. Let's get back to the podcast. Dostoevsky, reflecting on his brush with eternity, would later say that in that moment when death seemed imminent, that the, quote, old man died and the new man was born. In other words, the atheist died and the Christian found new life. Dostoevsky would turn, his conversion would be Augustinian. It would be Pauline. It was, it was in 180 degrees the, the other direction. He would dedicate the remainder of his life to combating the very ideologies in which he had formerly believed, and that is socialism and atheism. He would be chiefly consumed with the problem that had manifest itself on that day. Eternity with Christ or a handful of dust. Which is it? Every man, every woman must eventually face that question and make a decision. And this theme is brilliantly developed in his masterpiece, The Brothers Karamazov, published in 1881. Now, I will tell you this. When I taught Russian literature, I used to always tell my students, you know, who would complain. It. I don't have it here. I have, I think, Crime and Punishment right here. I have it sitting around here somewhere. That book is about, it's more than 800 pages long. And when my, when my students would complain when I've signed that book to them, they would say, oh, this book is so long. And I'd say, look, you should be glad that Dostoevsky died because he intended to make this a trilogy. <laughs> so, so instead of it being 800 uh, pages or so, you would have had 2,400 pages to read, approximately, assuming he made them all roughly the same length. The novel is superficially a murder mystery, but only superficially. At a much deeper level, the novel explores the consequences of man's rejection 
of absolutes. That's absolutes with a capital A, with their rejection of God. This is summed up in the thesis of the book. If there is no immortality, there can be no virtue, and all things are permissible. Let me repeat that. If there is no immortality, there can be no virtue, and all things are permissible. In other words, if there is no God, there is no ultimate right and wrong, and you can do whatever you can get away with because there's no one in the next life to judge you for your actions in this one. That is the thesis of that book. He also, by the way, deals with that, that, that very theme again just a, just a bit in Crime and Punishment. I would strongly encourage people to read it. The main character of the book is or one of the main characters of the book, is consumed with discovering the answer to that particular question. The second man is Oscar Wilde. He was born in 1854 and died in 1900. He considered the thesis from the opposite side of the question. In this little book right here, also this copy, I actually prefer um, this edition anyway, um, they read the same because it's written in English, but I just, I just prefer that volume, I guess, maybe because that's the one I used to, to teach it when I, I taught it for so many years. In this brilliant little book, which is kind of a lesser version of the Brothers Karamazov, The Picture of Dorian Gray, which was published in 1890, Wilde essentially says, no, there is no immortality, and thus you can do whatever you want. The main character of the book, Dorian, leads a life of sexual indulgence and perversion, ultimately to the expense of his own soul. Now, if you know anything about Wilde's life, then you also know that this book um, is somewhat autobiographical. Not entirely, but uh, Wilde is clearly speaking from experience here. Dostoevsky was certainly correct in predicting that these philosophies, then entering the academy like a Trojan horse, would lead to the banishment of God from society and, as a consequence, the rise of state-sponsored atheism, totalitarianism, and genocide. And to an extent, Wilde was also correct. He understood the implications of his own atheism. No ultimate foundation for ethics, no meaning in life, and the annihilation of public morality. He, like the character in the novel, lived his life in accordance with these principles, and it destroyed him. In reading the picture of Dorian Gray, one senses that Wilde is offering a warning to his readers. He's not, he's not urging them on to excess. He's not urging them on to hedonism, but rather he's saying, I have tried hedonism and I have discovered, this is a line from the book, by the way, the soul is a terrible reality. The soul is a terrible reality. Wilde had lived the hedonistic lifestyle. He was a homosexual. And he discovered the reality of something he didn't know that he had, and that is a soul. Another line from the book, which I remember, is this. The more he fed his hungers, meaning his sexual appetites, the more he fed his hungers, the more ravenous they became. More than a century on, we're able to see much more clearly how prophetic both Dostoevsky and Oscar Wilde were. The destruction of absolutes in the academy accomplished by Darwin, Marx, and Nietzsche has trickled down to the societal mainstream in a sort of 
popularized version. How so? Well, you're familiar with these concepts because they dominate our culture. It's reflected in such phrases as, what's right for you is not necessarily right for me. Be true to yourself. If it feels good, do it. Same-sex marriage, situational ethics, moral relativism, animal rights, transgenderism. Like postmodern literature, many words, the best words of our language have lost meaning, tolerance, freedom, diversity, morality, honor, truth, virtue. I'm reminded of another line by uh, Henry Steele Commager, a great historian, who, um, who, who said this, speaking of, um, of Abraham Lincoln, he was talking about the word character. And he said, character is an elusive word, as all great words are elusive. Truth, beauty, love, courage. Well, we know well enough what it is, and we know it when we see it. <laughs> That's it's beautifully written, beautifully expressed. And that's because language itself loses meaning when it's no longer anchored in the absolute. What do these words mean in modern America? Almost nothing. They're used to evoke warm, fuzzy feelings rather than concrete ideals. Amputated from the absolute, our very language has become relative, and it becomes almost impossible to communicate. Some years ago when I was, uh, was teaching, the faculty of the school I was in, and this is in the early 2000, late 90s perhaps, the faculty of the school voted to remove from the student handbook the phrase moral behavior because there was no longer a consensus of opinion as to what constituted moral behavior. This is a question you should ask because many of you have in your contracts, if you have a contract, you probably have a morality clause in the contract. And you should ask, whose morality? Can I have a copy of the corporations, of the businesses, of the institutions, of the organization's morality handbook? What rules are you applying here? Because as we've seen, once a society is no longer anchored in the absolute, we become all sale, no anchor. Morality is determined this way. So that yesterday, if you said that a man can't be a woman, that made sense, but today somehow it doesn't. You're being bound by that. You might be fired for saying that, for tweeting that, for posting it on Facebook. It's ever-changing. And there's no longer agreement on what constitutes morality. But this, of course, is only the small stuff. In America alone, we have seen the breakdown of the family, the advancement of the alphabet mafia's agenda, a rapid rise in crime, a corresponding decline in education, suicides at a rate hitherto unknown, and the list just goes on. On a larger scale, the century or so between the men I have mentioned and us has seen two world wars which killed approximately 70 million people, the two of them combined, and numerous genocides which killed many more. Many years ago, I was awarded a fellowship to do research on the intellectual origins of the Holocaust. So I went to Germany and Poland and Along the way, I visited, and, and Austria as well, and along the way, I visited Nazi concentration camps at Mauthausen, Buchenwald, Dachau, and Auschwitz, uh, Middelbaudora, others, places that are truly horrifying. 
And Mauthausen, which is in Austria, you can see the enormous ash heap, the remains of thousands of victims dumped hastily down a hillside. At Mauthausen, you can see the enormous ash heap, remains of thousands of victims dumped hastily down a hillside. At Auschwitz, one finds gas chambers, rooms full of human hair, and perhaps most poignant of all, a room full of baby shoes. Baby shoes. And another room of prosthetic limbs. And by the way, a note to Holocaust deniers. There are a few of you, I don't know if you're bots, I don't know if you're just trying to discredit this podcast or who you are, but occasionally appear in the comments, um, you're idiots. You're idiots. If you believe the Holocaust did not happen, you are an idiot. Um, uh, I recall a statement from Alexander Weisberg. He wrote a book. He was a communist, actually, uh, who's speaking about the Stalinist purges, wrote a book called um, Witness. And in it, he says this. It's brilliant. History gives one weapon to truth, which it denies to the lie. Lies have many versions. Truth has only one. And I have interviewed many Holocaust survivors, people who've never met, but they're telling the same story. Uh, it didn't matter. In the, uh, in the 1930s, in the 1940s, in the 1950s, these people were pouring out of uh, um, Germany, out of Eastern Europe, out of the concentration camps, and they're all telling the same stories again and again. You can watch the films, of course, of the liberation of these camps. You can talk to, or at least now, find um, the testimonies of those men who were part of the liberation of those camps. Well, at Dachau, which was the first of the concentration camps, opened in 1933, there is a large stone memorial, and it stands defiantly in the center of the camp with the phrase, never again, written boldly in five languages. Now, the first time I saw it, I was moved by the power of such a statement, never again. Then it struck me that it was absurd. And that's because the sad fact is it has happened again, many times, in fact. In the 20th century alone, we saw additional genocides in Russia, Cambodia, Rwanda, Iraq, North Korea, the Balkans, and the unborn in our own country. And yet, it's still fashionable to consider man basically good. Of course, Christians are not the only ones to recognize the problems that I've cited. As I mentioned at the outset, polls demonstrate that most Americans sense that the ground is moving under their feet, but it seems to me, 71% of Americans, by the way, but it seems to me that the response has been poor on the part of all. While much of the church has abandoned the culture and run to the mountaintop to wait for Jesus's return, secular society has responded to the chaos with the establishment, the revisiting of the Roman Pantheon. Now, the Pantheon is uh, it's kind of an effort to make a multicultural society work. It literally means the Hall of the Gods or the Place of the Gods. I was there earlier this year. In fact, I was there a couple of times um, earlier this year. And um, the Pantheon uh, was literally a place where the, the countries of the defeated territories, those countries that were defeated, subjugated by the Romans, they would take their gods and they would place them 
in the pantheon, the hall of the gods. And it was their way of saying, we declare everyone's truth equally valid, provided that everyone acknowledged the state as supreme. Now, this should sound familiar because this is where we find ourselves now. There's kind of a reestablishment of the pantheon as our borders are opened and as multiculturalism, we're told, is wonderful. We're told that our strength is found in diversity and all this kind of nonsense. What we're told from on high is to embrace multiculturalism, to embrace diversity, to declare everyone's truth as equally valid. But there's a problem with this. And that is because now, just as in Roman times, Christians find themselves persecuted. Now, not to the same degree that they were by the Romans, at least not yet. Doesn't mean that we won't get there. But I think even non-Christians, if they're honest, would be willing to say that Christianity is the only religion that is politically correct to discriminate against in America, in the West in general. And why is that? Well, it's because Christians do not merely claim to possess a truth. They claim to possess the truth. What did Jesus say? I am a way, a truth, a life. No, that's not what he said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. In that one statement in John 14, 6, most politically incorrect statement in all of Scripture, he declared every other way of salvation, every other means of life, every other claim of truth to be utterly invalid. There's only one he was declaring. And that's why Christians are intolerable to tyrannical regimes. As Francis Schaeffer, I think I have a Francis Schaeffer book or two, yeah, I do, right here. As Francis Schaeffer wrote, no totalitarian or authoritarian regime can tolerate a people who say that they have an absolute universal standard by which all men are judged. So do you understand the problem here? Christians have to be persecuted by totalitarian regimes because those regimes claim to be the truth. But you see, Christians believe that there is a power that is higher than that of the state and that that power is the ultimate truth and it is a truth that will ultimately judge the regime and its actions as well. It's a claim that there is a God, that there is a God whose truth is eternal, that is absolute, that it is timeless, that it applies to everyone universally for all time. And my point, I hope, is clear. Absent an absolute, absent a fixed point, as Blaise Pascal, the, the philosopher, put it, we've lost our bearings. Now, as a former dean of students, and a dean of students in a school is like the angel of death. I mean, you're responsible for discipline. And I was once upon a time, I was a dean of students in an elite preparatory school. And I can tell you this, that young people in particular are quick to pick up on the hypocrisy of parents and schools that tell them that they must be good, but offer them no compelling reasons to do so. Um, 
too often schools will say you should do it because it's good for the community, because it's good for society, because it's good for you, but they offer nothing really beyond platitudes. Because the fact is, as many of them know, lying, cheating, and stealing will get you ahead. They see the news too, and they know all too well that more often than not, athletes, corporate heads, and politicians get away with their misdeeds. Has Hillary Clinton ever really paid for anything she's ever done? Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, Bill Gates, do any of these people ever pay? The answer apparently is no, at least not until eternity. In his autobiography, the Finnish philosopher and sociologist Edward Westermark relates how three of his students approached him after one of his lectures at the London School of Economics, and they asked him, uh, why are we here? I mean, it's the, the fundamental question of human life, to which he responded, such questions should not be asked. Here we are, and we cannot alter it. Sadly, this is the implicit response of our culture to the same unspoken question that is turning over in the minds of our youth. It doesn't take long for an intelligent student, for an intelligent young person to conclude that doing as he pleases is both logical and in his self-interest if there's no one taking account of his deeds in this life in order to punish or reward them in the next. Dostoevsky's words ring out. If there is no immortality, there could be no virtue and all things are permissible. So having diagnosed the problem that we've annihilated belief in absolute truth because we have suppressed belief in God. This is the way Romans 1 puts it, by the way. Romans 1 says that we suppress the truth. We suppress what can be known about God because we don't want to believe, because we prefer to make ourselves the source of our own truth. So now having diagnosed that problem, what are we to do as Christians? Shall we huddle together and sing hymns as the cultural lions devour us? Shall we polish the decks on the Titanic as it goes down? Well, of course not. If you listen to this podcast, you know that that's not what I believe. First of all, we must recognize, as Ecclesiastes tells us, that, quote, there is nothing new under the sun. The church has faced these issues before and has won. This is all just new, bad philosophies that are being repackaged. Second, we must engage. Lincoln had little respect for General George McClellan, and that's because he built an army, he trained an army, he equipped an army, but he never used his army. So much did he prize it. He didn't want to damage it. He didn't want to lose it. Lincoln's very famous for saying, if Mr. McClellan has no plans to utilize the army, I should like to borrow it for a while. I think that we as Christians, we have to be willing to engage. If, if Christians who are sitting in pews are not going to be used, I should like to borrow them for a while. They need to engage. According to Pew Forum, 76% of the people in this country say that they're Christians. Now, we know that that's a very high number, and we know that that number is probably not reliable. But 26% answer affirmatively to questions like, do you believe the Bible is true? Do you believe that Jesus is the only way? Do you believe that there is a place 
called hell? These kinds of questions, 26% of Americans answer, answer affirmatively to those questions. That's one in four. That's one in four people. Why aren't they engaging? They must engage. We are currently facing what one of my boys called when he was a little boy, a Zulu scenario. One of his, one of his favorite movies was, um, oh, doggone, what's the name of it? Um, I think it's just called Zulu. I think it's just called Zulu, the one with, um, with Michael Caine in it, which is telling the story of the Zulu uprising in the second half of the, uh, the 19th century in South Africa, and where the, the Zulu people vastly outnumber the British army. Well, we're facing a kind of Zulu scenario. And unless we bring all arms, that is to say all people, unless they bring their faith to bear, we can't expect to gain any ground. You have to engage. You have to be willing to engage. You know, I'm fascinated by the fact that here's this book right here, Orlando Figes. He's a... Um, a Cambridge historian, or was at the time of uh, um, the writing of this book, it's called A People's Tragedy. It's, uh, it's, it's a fascinating book. But in talking about how Marxism so thoroughly conquered the minds of Russian intellectuals in the 19th centuries, he says this. He says that there were no viable competing ideologies in Russia at that time meaning that Marxism was set loose in an ideological vacuum. See, that, didn't that wasn't what happened in the West. That's why Marxism, at least until recently, really didn't gain much uh, um, traction in the West, didn't have much credibility in the West, and that's because it was submitted to withering attacks from, from other viewpoints. Um, that might be a, um, a, a, a viewpoint of a rich... Um, conservative tradition in the West, a Christian religious perspective, that simply didn't exist in Russia at that time. So the result was that Marxism triumphed first ideologically in Russia before it actually conquered the country through force of arms and led to the deaths of, oh, roughly 60 million Russians, to say nothing of the many other people who were killed as a result of Marxism around the world. The point is that right now here in the United States, we increasingly have something of an ideological vacuum, or at least a vacuum of good ideologies, of good ideologies, as some of you say. But on this podcast, we say ideologies because um, of the idiots who embrace things like Marxism and the fascism that we are currently seeing. So the fact is we have to be willing to engage and we have to be willing to engage with a faith that has teeth, that has real teeth. Jesus changed the world with 12, 12. Imagine what would happen if every person who is listening to this podcast took the gospel serious and engaged the world. Think about that. What if only half of the people listening to this podcast did? I submit to you, that we could, with humble reliance on the Holy Spirit and careful observance of God's word, we could change the world. We could, we could see a revival in this country like nothing since the Great Awakenings. But how are we to do it? Well, in 1 Peter 3.15 and 16, the apostle 
Peter tells us this. He gives us a very clear directive. Always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. C.S. Lewis speaking to this problem, he put it this way. The world has no more hope of finding God on its own than Hamlet had of finding Shakespeare. In order for Hamlet to find Shakespeare, the author would have to write himself into the story. And so it is with this life. The author of it has written himself into our world. He has made himself known to us. He has dwelt among us, as John chapter 1 states. More than that, he's written you into the story, and how wonderful is that? It is a measure of God's mercy that he allows unbelievers to come into contact with you. Have you ever thought about that? You know, when, when God declares war, he closes his embassy. He evacuates his people. The fact that he hasn't speaks to his mercy, that he allows other people to come into contact with his people. That is a sign of his compassion, and it is also a sign that he hasn't given up on our society. He hasn't given up on this culture. Again, I remind you, John 14, 6 states very clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Armed with that truth, not just with some counterfeit version of it, let me urge you to go forward with confidence and engage the world that is around you. Engage the world with the truth and to point people towards that truth. Now, 1 Peter 3.15 makes pretty clear. You are to give a defense for the hope that is in you. How do you do that? You tell your story. You tell your story how Jesus Christ changed your life. Very easy for me to do that, um, particularly on a day like today. You know, my, my wife and I wouldn't say we're celebrating today. You might say we memorialize. She reminded me today that this is the day that eight years ago I was hit by a car. And... Um, and was declared dead in the road and was in ICU for a very long time and was told, you know, that I wasn't expected to live and um, broken back and broken neck and broken absolutely everything else. And yet I did. I, and I did, ladies and gentlemen, because the God that I serve decreed that it should be so, uh, that he wasn't finished with my life. And I believe that I won't leave this earth one nanosecond prior to when he intends for me to go. And with that, I'm prepared to engage the world around me. And part of the way that I do it is on this podcast, is through my writing, it's through my speaking. For you, it might be a very different thing that you're doing. It might be with neighbors over the backyard fence. It might be with your children or with your grandchildren. Maybe even some of you have great grandchildren. It might be with um, students in your classroom. It might be with fellow students. It might be with your neighbor. It might be with friends. It might be with family members. Whatever it is, be prepared to engage with truth. And to the extent that you are able to, and by the way, this is an absolute directive here. I mean, Jesus did throw over a few tables in Ephesians um, uh, 4.26, I think it is, says, be angry, but do not sin, meaning there is a place for righteous anger. But to the extent that we're able to engage with gentleness and respect, but do not make the mistake that the church has made today, and that is to make is to flip those. Is to make gentleness and respect the 
the, the goal rather than the gospel, the goal rather than the defense of the gospel, the goal. And thus they end up compromising everything because they hope above all else to be civil and to be liked. That's not our mission. Um, when we're told to turn an, uh, the, uh, the other cheek, that doesn't mean to turn a blind eye to the great evil that we are seeing sweeping our land and covering it like a dark cloud.